Love it or hate it, the agile approach to software development seems to be here to stay. Often, it's hard to get a good design practice to fit within an agile framework. So our next guest, Joshua Seiden, co-author of Lean UX and Outcomes Over Output, may be particularly helpful to those of you who are struggling. We chat with Joshua about how to fit user research into a sprint and how he advocates for setting outcomes to guide the work of your team. We also chat about how design teams should think about measuring their work. Grab a copy of one of his books and enjoy this conversation with Joshua Seiden. Thanks for tuning in. Josh Seiden, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thanks for having me here. Josh, you're an author of multiple books, and we want to jump into the details of those books because there's definitely a lot that UX teams and designers can learn from that. Probably more broadly, companies can learn from those things. Let's start with your origin story. Where'd you grow up? What was, what was life like growing up? So I'm uh, originally from New York City, born in Manhattan, raised in Queens, went to high school and college in Manhattan, moved out to the West Coast after college and did a, a stint in Silicon Valley. And now I'm back home in New York, the big city. You've got sort of an interesting background that you studied English, but you somehow found your way into design and, and the tech world. Could you tell us how that happened? Yeah, I got, I got really interested in uh, fiction writing in college. I actually had really bad writer's block in school. And mm. I thought, you know, the only way I'm going to solve this problem is to go at it head first. And so I signed up for a writing class. And it was sort of, you know, kind of a do or die situation. I learned a technique in writing class called timed writing, where you set a clock and the only rule of timed writing is that you keep your hand in motion for the entire time that the mm. clock is ticking. And so even if you have nothing to write, you just write, I have nothing to write, I have nothing to write, I have nothing to write. Mm -hmm. Until you get bored, and then you start to write something. <laughs> it really taught me, in retrospect, how to unlock the creative process, how to separate out the sort of, you know, what designers know as divergent thinking, yep. right? The creative process, creating new things from the editing process, which is converging. One of the things that happens when you have writer's block is you're trying to write and edit at the same time. Yeah. And so by just being a little bit disciplined and using a kind of a silly little process trick, you unlock this whole world. And so in college, I fell in love with the creative process. I fell in love with writing. Not a lot of work out there for fiction writers. And so I followed my girlfriend to California after college, and I was living in the Bay Area and as you do out there, if you're, I guess, in that environment, I stumbled into the, into the technology industry. I started working for a, a little company that made consumer computer accessories called Kensington. Mm -hmm. My first job there was literally, I was answering the tech support number. And we were getting all these complaints there because people couldn't understand our software. And I went to my boss with a napkin sketch and I said, you know, hey, if we just do this, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time. It was a <laughs> user interface sketch, right? If we just do this, I bet we, our call volume will go down. And he liked the idea of that. He tried to get the software team to do it. They were very, very resistant. And one of the key people on that team quit in protest. <laughs> wow. Like, what, is this, what does this tech support kid know about right, user yeah. interface design? And so... My boss was like, okay, well, guess what's your job now? 
So I actually, I ended up sort of stumbling into running a little software team as a kind of a product person and user interface designer. And I had to teach myself that stuff on the, on the job. And I, I took a night course. I was lucky to get a course out there with, uh, with Richard Anderson, who also organized the Beikai speaker series. And so I got to hear and meet a lot of really interesting people. This was early 90s. I picked up a book called About Face by Alan Cooper. Of course, it's a and, classic. And yeah, and, and I was like, it, it, it was mind blowing. And then as luck would have it, a friend of mine went to work for Alan as a salesperson. Mm-hmm. And she called me up and she said, Josh, you should apply to work here as a designer. And I, I laughed. I was like, you should, you know, that's uh, as me being a designer is as likely as me being an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, no, that thing that you are doing, that's design. And that, that's what we call it. And the interesting thing about that moment was that design schools were teaching the sort of print tradition or they were teaching mm-hmm. industrial design. Mm-hmm. There was no place you could go to learn interaction design. So Alan, to try and find designers who thought like him, he had a test on his website. You could download the test and take the test. And he didn't look at resumes. He just wanted to see how you thought. I guess I passed the test. He brought me in for an interview. And, and that was sort of the start of it. That's amazing. Well, I mean, how, how lucky is that to find your way into Cooper that early on? Yeah, yeah. It was a real series of, uh, series of fortunate events, I guess. Well, let's let's back up a step to you making a sketch, the napkin sketch for Kensington. Could you help us understand, like, why did you think as a tech support person that you had the, you know, it, that takes some courage to and some gumption to make that sketch and give that to your boss? Where did that confidence come from? Part of it is that I'm an impatient person who wants to make, you know, I see a thing and I want to make it better. I think that's one of the frustrations that designers experience in the world that makes them designers, you know? And I had done that before at the company on a smaller scale on a couple of other projects. So I've I've been rewarded for that behavior. We made a really great little product at the time, a trackball. And it had a button on either side of it. It was essentially a two-button mouse. This was for a Macintosh. And this was before the Macintosh system had that control-click thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was there, there was no concept of a second button on the Mac. And so we had a little piece of software. The only thing it did was because of the way the thing was set up, it was useful to be able to have one button that was a regular click and another button where you could just tap it and it would uh, hold the button down. Mm-hmm. That was great. People loved that piece of software. And then we thought, well, if we can change what the button does, we can make it do all kinds of cool stuff. So we had the software grew a feature, a double click. And then you could make it shift click and shift option click and shift command click. And you could make all of these features. You could make the button of the mouse do all this stuff, stuff that really nobody wanted to do. <laughs> but you could do it. And so... I think, I think people wanted it, but Steve Jobs didn't want it. Well, you know what? There was it was one of these things. It was kind of like a long tail, right? There were lots of lots of possible features you could implement, but you know the majority of people wanted the center of the bell curve, mm-hmm. and we. This is the way Alan Cooper in those days talked about it. 
they used to talk about this idea of user interfaces being uninflected. They would present every feature to you as if they were all equally important. Never mind that there were some features that you wanted every single day mm -hmm. and some features you wanted once every 10 years. The software would just show you this long list. Mm -hmm. And so my sketch was just like, let's hide all that junk. It'll still be there for the people who want it, but let's make the most popular features the one that people see and the other stuff will put, kind of bury it. And in retrospect, that seems like a not a big insight, but at the time, right, we were really just as an industry, we were learning how, how software should behave on screen and we didn't understand the basic grammar. And so one of the exciting things about Alan's work is that first about Facebook was that it was almost like a basic grammar for software behavior in you know, a time when people didn't know what a pop-up window should do. So I wanted to go back to something you, you touched on earlier where we were, we were talking about the kind of writing phase of your career. And you mentioned this technique of timed writing, which, which sounds like it shares a lot. I don't know if you've ever heard of this morning pages technique, which, which is kind of similar. Do you have any other you know, techniques like that for getting teams into divergent mindset, especially if they might be on the engineering team and a little more solutions oriented? I teach a lot of workshops with teams where a lot of what we're trying to do in those workshops is to have teams collaborate and bring lots of different points of view into creating a solution. One way to do that is to get them generating ideas together, right? And so th these kinds of techniques are really good for, for that problem, like getting teams sitting around a table, generating ideas together. And so I, I wrote something about that in my first book, which I wrote with Jeff Gottelf called Lean UX. There's a section on, on what in that book is called Design Studio. And it's a way to just get everybody around the table and generating ideas. And, and one of the techniques, sometimes you hear it called crazy eights, mm -hmm. right? where you fold a piece of paper into uh, eight squares and you give everybody in the room a pencil and everybody gets five minutes and you have to generate eight ideas in five minutes. And one of the things about that, kind of a prompt like that is that constraint of five minutes, you don't get to overthink it right? Mm -hmm. you, you just have to start generating ideas. You know implicitly that most of the ideas that come out in a five-minute brainstorming session like that, most of the ideas are going to be bad. It takes a lot of the pressure off, right? And so it makes it very hard to kind of engage with the editor and the kind of generator at the same time. So I think that's kind of the, that's, you know, when, when brainstorming methods are done well, that's kind of what they're designed to do get the sort of generation process started. We've heard a lot, a lot of examples of brainstorming done wrong. Do you have any uh, tips or tricks for just getting into the right kind of divergent frame of mind? For me, like the thing is brainstorming is useful as a way to get people answering a question. And I think where it goes wrong is if you don't, if, is if the prompt isn't well-designed. And so hey, everybody, come up with a crazy idea. Like, yeah, everybody's going to come up with crazy ideas, right? The point is not that the ideas are fun or crazy. It's that they're supposed to answer something specific. So when I'm teaching this method, we don't start with brainstorming. We start by framing the problem, right? What's the business problem we're trying to solve? When we solve it, what's the result for the business? What's the user in question or the customer in question? 
What are their needs? What are their goals? When we solve it for them, what do they get out of it? And so when you kind of frame the problem correctly, everybody sort of understands the problem space and looking at the same bullseye. And so you're sort of figuring out how to get there together. And so for me, that's a really, really important thing is, is how do we frame up a good question to be the focus of a brainstorm or a creative endeavor? So Josh, as you alluded to, you work with a lot of teams and try to help them see how to collaborate better. Are there common patterns you see with teams, especially cross-disciplinary teams of where they're most dysfunctional? So a lot of my work is about how to help design and product management and engineering and all of those related disciplines work together more effectively in an agile context. Companies that are implementing agile tend to run into the same kinds of stumbling blocks over and over again, right? One really common one is that the organizations are siloed, right? So engineers sit in the next building or they sit in India and designers sit in New York or Boston or California or whatever. It's really hard to build a good, flexible collaboration when you're separated by space. That mm -hmm. tends to make teams kind of hand things off from one another as opposed to design is created, hand it off, as opposed to sitting in a room together, figuring out the answer together. Another pattern that I see a lot, and I think this one's really tough, is many organizations don't have the right staffing levels of design to whatever else. Right? They're terribly understaffed in design. And so they've got designers in this sort of no-win situation where they don't have enough time to do a good job, and then they have to do that bad job for two or four or six teams that they're supposed to service. Mm -hmm. It creates a situation of designers having to justify their presence, it creates low trust environment, it creates uh, bad working conditions. All these things fall out of that, that bad ratio, right? And we can, we can talk about the specifics of, of each of them, but that's a really hard thing. And people often ask like, you know, what do I do? I've got like a hundred developers and one designer, you know, and uh, you know, how does agile help me with that? And it's like, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, the problem isn't your process. The problem is you have a, you're, you're not correctly staffed, right? There's no process that solves for bad staffing levels. So those are some of the patterns I see. Are there staffing levels that you see are like, here's the threshold or the ratio where things start to become back into balance? Do you have those conversations? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a big believer in small, cross-functional, dedicated teams. Team, whether you call them a pod or a scrum team, a lot of names for mm -hmm. it. But it's a, it's a little self-sufficient team that contains all of the skills you need in order to ship, mm -hmm. right? Those teams may have different balances. You may have a content-heavy project where you actually need two writers on the team, one designer, two writers. You might not need a designer. You might need two writers one tester, one engineer, two engineers, 10 engineers. But, but the, the issue is like balancing that with a small dedicated team, that's where that, the ratio needs to, needs to be driven from. And so it's not like across an organization, there's some, oh, it, it should be 10 to one or five to one. It, it's not really an organization question. It's a, it comes up from what are your pods and what is the nature of each pod, the work that each pod is doing. So one of your articles you've written recently, well, in this 
topic of agile and, and fitting design into an agile workflow, you wrote about here's what to do when user research doesn't fit into a sprint, an article on Medium, which I thought was great. Could you talk about some of the principles that you discussed there? I think a lot of a lot of companies get very stuck in a very rigid implementation of agile. If you're you're doing Scrum, for example, which is kind of the most popular agile framework. And you're doing Scrum, you're supposed your sprints are supposed to last two weeks. And the big thing in Scrum is at the end of every two-week sprint, you have to produce this thing called a done increment. Done increment is a finished piece of working software that is ready to ship. Okay. That's useful for a lot of reasons. It's useful because it forces people to show their work. It forces transparency. It means that a team can't go away for months and work on something, that every two weeks, the team needs to show exactly what they've accomplished. It's a great thing, but it has the potential to be applied too broadly, right? So you start to hear people say, well, anything that can't be done in two weeks is not valuable, Mm -hmm. right? If we're not done in two weeks, we can't do it. We're not allowed to do anything bigger than two weeks. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Some work can fit easily into two weeks. Some design work, some research work, you know, Yahtzee, no problem. But some work takes a long time. It's just the nature of the work. How do you solve that conflict? And so the teams that I train ask about that all the time, especially researchers. Researchers are like, well, look, this study, I know how to do this study. I'm an expert researcher. I've been doing this research my whole career. I'm telling you, This is eight weeks of work. The mindless answer is, well, just do it in two weeks. Fit it into the sprint somehow. Or it completely doesn't go into the agile process and it's broken. And now you people are outsiders. You go away. Mm -hmm. You can't be part of the agile process. And I think both of those answers are wrong. I think what the real meaning of this like done in two weeks is that you want to be delivering value every two weeks. And you want to be transparent with your work and creating opportunities to inspect the work every two weeks. So an eight-week research study, you should be planning on saying, well, okay, at the end of every sprint, I'm going to share the work in progress. I'm going to deliver some value to my team. Hey, we did two interviews this week. Here are the themes that came out of the interview. That's valuable, even if it's not finished research or done conclusions. It's really valuable. A team will get value from that without having to wait for eight weeks to learn what you've been doing. So what I'm always advocating for is, as a researcher, be a part of the team, lead your team through research, be transparent with your work, and deliver value every two weeks. And then the the challenge is, well, okay, but the Scrum Master says I have to write a story, a ticket or something, and put it in JIRA. I put that in JIRA. But what you need to do is you need to have a real conversation with your team about what's important. And what's important is at the end of those two weeks, you're sharing your work in progress in a way that your team finds valuable. Yeah, I think the thing that we hear a lot of teams struggle with is just that, so there's a lot of great ideas and great intentions with let's say Scrum or just Agile in general. And then there's a certain point where it becomes so rigid that it's not accommodating to other ways of thinking and working. It, be, it goes from a framework to a 
dogma. Do you, do you see that or do you hear that from design teams? The conflict is that, or I, one of the big sources of conflict, I should say, is that if you think about the engineering team at the heart of this process, trying to work in an agile way, they're often working inside an organization that thinks about managing the work in a much more traditional and linear fashion, hmm. right? So they think about an annual plan or an annual budget or an mm -hmm. annual roadmap, as opposed to a continuously evolving plan based on what we're learning today. So what you actually, like the, the heart of it is that agile methods are in conflict with our kind of like industrial age management practices. And organizations are really reluctant to give those up. It means that leadership and management have to give up control of the agenda. And so what you see, like I, I was talking to an organization recently that said, look, we can't put research in our backlog and then leave the stories open at the end of the sprint because it reduces our velocity. I said, well, okay, who cares that it reduces the velocity? And they said, well, leadership measures us on our velocity. That's not agile, right? That's a kind of a classic old command and control way mm -hmm. of interacting with the team. We don't trust you. And so you have to prove to us that you're making stuff really fast. As opposed to the sort of agile principle of self-organizing team, not making stuff fast, but figuring out the right stuff to make, right? And delivering value as opposed to just delivering stuff. So you've got this conflict between the sort of old world and the new world. That's kind of what the, my second book, Sense and Respond, was all about. It's about how to help leaders see that you can't just tell the teams to be agile mm -hmm. and the rest of the organization can stay unchanged. You have to think about the whole system and the organization that your agile teams fit into. So there's a lot of that anxiety that's driving that bad behavior that's forcing, I think, a lot of that very, yeah. very rigid command and control agile. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp dot com slash design better today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help H E L P dot com slash design better support for design better comes from uplift desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. 
and they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Another criticism that we hear often too is that Agile tends to focus our attention on what and when, but it doesn't often make space for why for the the big picture, which kind of goes back to Eli's question about where research fits in. But, you know, it's a lot of like microscope view of like, here's this story, here's our velocity, we're going to ship this thing in a small amount of time. But where are we going? What's like a year from now, two years from now? What's the big picture of what we're trying to create? Curious if that's something you hear as well and, and how we address that. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I hear it all the time. Maybe I'll tell you, we'll go back a little bit, Aaron, to my origin story. When I worked at Cooper in the 90s, the way our consulting engagements worked is we sold these um, three-phase projects, a month of research, and then a month of sort of wireframe level design. We had fancy titles for it because we charged high prices, right? But it was research, it was wireframing, and then it was detailed design. And all of that was captured in a, in a book, like three books, one for each phase. We talked about plop factor, right? A good deliverable was one that made a solid plop when you dropped it on the desk. Those teams did a lot of great work, and I'm proud of a lot of that work, but very little of it got implemented. Very little of it was usable by our clients. And ironically, it was not user-centric in the sense that it was not usable by the clients. They couldn't digest those big chunks of thinking. And often, if there were sort of foundational concepts in it that were wrong, it made a lot of the work kind of less valuable than it could be. And so I, I say this because my start is in the big upfront design and planning and visioning universe. That's where I like to live. I enjoy that work. And I think it's really, really valuable. But I think that we often do it in a way that makes it hard for teams to use. And so what I'm always looking for is how do you, how can you be user-centric and vision-led and agile at the same time? How can you set a lightweight but inspiring vision and then move towards it in a way where you're always learning and always adjusting as you get new information? And so when it's done well, you have these incredibly excited and motivated teams who are trying to figure out and, and are really engaged. They're engaged around the customer journey. They're engaged around the business problem. They're engaged around the research that they're doing. They're building to learn. And they're bringing those kind of two things together. When it's done badly, you have kind of a vision that everybody ignores. And you have teams whose mandate is just to make stuff. We told you to make this. Go make it for a year, and then we'll ship it. Well, never mind if it's right or wrong. One of the reasons that you get these kind of micro-focused agile teams is that 
for a lot of organizations that are trying to figure out how to deliver software, honestly, they're really just trying to figure out how to deliver anything. Mm -hmm. Like delivering <laughs> anything is a huge win. And so that's why, the, that's why this notion of two-week sprints where you're done at the end, it feels like such a giant victory, right? Yeah. Even though we know, we, we know like, okay, look, that's crawling. That's not even walking, mm -hmm. right? But in a lot of organizations, that's a big win. And so for a lot of companies that are kind of adopting Agile or hiring Agile methods, they've got a very near-term problem, which is let's just learn how to deliver. But then they stop there as opposed to kind of maturing to the next level. So this might be a good segue to talk about your, your latest book, Outcomes Over Output. And on the blurb there, you talk about setting goals as outcomes and, yep. and it being a practical guide to using outcomes to guide teams' work. Tell us a little bit more about why outcomes are so important. You know, one of the interesting things, so, so when I meet teams that are in this kind of state, right, where they've got their sort of first level of agile capability together, they're reliably making software every two weeks. You'll often hear people saying inside those organizations, we'd really like to be more outcome focused. There's almost a cliche or a slogan. People say outcomes over outputs. But then when you actually get into the organization and you start working with these teams, that's actually really hard. It's really hard because first, they don't even have a shared definition of what an outcome is. And so one of the first things that I do in the book is I talk about a very specific and very narrow definition of outcome. And the definition that I like to use is that an outcome is a change in human behavior that drives business results. And what I like about that is it grounds it in what your users are doing, what your customers are doing, and what the people inside your organization are doing in a very specific and observable way. So when we talk about, for example, I, I think of my kind of core discipline as interaction design. And people in interaction design say, look, the thing that is interaction design are designers of behavior. We're trying to create systems that influence human behavior. And so talking about an outcome is, is a change in human behavior. We want to get people to visit our website more often. That's a really different mission than we're going to make an email campaign, right? Or we want to issue people a credit card that they can start using in one day after they call the bank. That's a really different mandate to a team than to say, hey, build a new website where people can apply for a credit card. Build a new website is an output. It's a thing we make. It's what we were talking about earlier. It's shipping something every two weeks. The result of that, people can apply for a credit card and use it within a day. That's an outcome. And those are the things that are valuable to the business. Those are the things that help teams align around vision, that help teams be user-centered. The book is all about how do you go from this kind of desire to be outcome-focused to what are the simple practical methods that we can use to align our team around outcomes. Let's dig into that a little bit more because one thing we've noticed is that designers, design teams, even design leaders tend to be not that good at measuring their work and tying their efforts to a specific KPI, something that's quantifiable. And that creates problems in terms of aligning 
what design is doing with engineering and other parts of the business. Is there a way that you advocate when you go into teams that designers and design leaders should think about measuring their work? Yeah. And, and I think actually that designers and design leaders are actually uniquely well-equipped to lead this conversation because we are the people who are thinking about what our end users are doing with the system. The first challenge is that it's often the case that the work gets framed in terms of a result that's too high level. We'll say to a team, hey, we want you to do this thing. It'll be a success when it improves customer satisfaction. Well, customer satisfaction isn't a behavior. That's the first thing. And customer satisfaction is a result of a lot of different factors, mm-hmm. right? So you could have a great credit card issuing process, but your interest rate is off the charts and it kicks in after the first purchase. Your customer is going to be very unsatisfied. doesn't matter how good your website is. In the book, I talk about this notion of your high-level things like customer satisfaction, profit, revenue, cost, all these big things that executives care about. Those are impacts. That's the word that we use for that. And the impacts are kind of the result of lots and lots of outcomes. So your job as a team or as a designer are to figure out what are the the outcomes that create that impact, right? What are the small things that people are doing that predict that they'll be satisfied and try and make it easy for them to do that. A lot of times, the example I use in the book is you can do a customer journey map. And you can just map people's behavior in the system. And then you can look and you can say, you know what? We know that when people do this thing here, it makes them successful and happy. The classic example is like in the early days of Twitter, when, when people posted a tweet within their first seven days, it predicted that they would be an engaged user. Most systems have things like that. What are those things? We look at the customer journey map. We say, we know if people do this thing here, they're satisfied. Or if people don't do this thing here, they're dissatisfied or or whatever those behaviors are. When you map them out, you can start to look at them and then you can start to focus on one or two and say, hey, this one's important this quarter. We're going to focus on this number for this quarter. We're going to get people to respond to email more quickly. And we're going to figure out what features will help us do that. Maybe they're not software features. Maybe they're email campaigns or maybe they're content, maybe it's a change in copy, whatever that thing is. But designers, I think, are uniquely in this position to help the organization figure out what those detailed behaviors are. So you get to see inner workings of a lot of different teams. What are designers doing right now that makes them less effective? I think there are a couple of things. And again, like I'm going to answer this in the context of designers working in an agile context, because those are the those are the teams that I'm working with these days. A lot of designers who encounter an agile process, they try to do the same thing that they've always done as a designer, but they try to do it faster. I'm going to take my design process and I'm going to cram it into two weeks. That usually doesn't work very well. Every once in a while, you can minify your design process and get it into two weeks. But doing the same thing faster is a real anti-pattern. And so what you need to do is you need to step back and you can say, how can I help my team be more effective? in creating good solutions, in doing good research, in creating beautiful products. And sometimes that means stepping away from the tools that we are comfortable with as, a, as designers and design, the design community 
and becoming much more facilitative. And so that's really one of the big changes that I've seen in design practice over the last 10 years is going from sort of designers as sort of master of the large monitor, working by themselves, producing these beautiful artifacts. That's still important sometimes, but there's another skill that's really important, which is how can I facilitate my team through a design process? How can I lead them through a collaborative sketching? How can I build a research plan and then take uh, one or two engineers out with me on field visits so that they can see firsthand the customer that they're building software for? I think holding on to kind of an older way of working as opposed to embracing this role as sort of the leader of your team's success in this area, as opposed to the person solely responsible for it. To me, that's the big transformation. This aligns well with something you were saying earlier. You were kind of alluding to these cross-functional teams. Historically, designers do a lot of design up front and then pass it over to engineering to be built. And different approaches for that to be really close and collaborative, being in the same room. Can you talk about just like what that process looks like between a designer and an engineer in particular when it goes really well? So with a couple of partners, I ran a consulting shop for three years from um, 2012 to 2015, ran a shop called Neo. Our first two hires in the New York studio, we had a designer and a developer who worked really, really well together. I don't know if you've heard the expression, uh, two pizza team, right? Is this idea yeah, that a, sure. a team that's, teams should be small enough that you can feed them with two pizzas. These guys used to joke that they were a two burger team, <laughs> that you could feed them with, you could feed them with two burgers. They would sit next to each other and they would pair on most of their problems. Sometimes they would stand up and go to the whiteboard and sketch together. If you came into that room, and saw them sketching, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was the designer and which mm. one was the developer because they were passing the marker back and forth. And then they would kind of come to some agreement and they would go back to their desks and they sat next to each other. The designer would sort of elaborate that design in terms of the visual presentation and the, the way the front end should look and work. And the developer would build the functionality. And when they got to sort of a impasse or a stopping point, they'd talk about it. They would stand up together, go back to that same whiteboard, solve the next problem. And so it works like that. It, it's very high trust, mm -hmm. high collaboration, mm -hmm. low ceremony, and a, a willingness to kind of get in the air and kind of cross the boundaries between my role and your role. We heard something very similar from Google. They were describing meetings where they'd talk about a product or have some design review. And the comment was, you can't tell who's the designer, who's the developer, who's the product owner. It's just, it's all very fluid. Yeah, and you see that in high trust environments where people feel confident in their role enough to let other people play in that territory. What's inspiring you these days? And that can be anything from books to podcasts to just people around you. What's inspiring you either for your work or personally? So, I, I mean, maybe this, maybe this comes back to the start of the interview when we were talking about fiction writing, but I'm really interested and I've been interested as a designer and as a writer in how experiences unfold over time. How does a short story unfold? 
how does an interactive experience unfold? How do you learn about a piece of software or experience a website? What information should people get at any given time? And as I've been teaching over the last number of years, I've been thinking a lot about that same question in the context of workshops and courses and learning experiences. And so one of the next things that I'm going to be working on with Jeff are a series of online trainings, right? We, we focused primarily on in-person trainings. And so I'm thinking a lot about how information unfolds over these new media, in these new channels. Super fascinating puzzle to me. I look forward to figuring it out. That's kind of the next challenge for me. That's great. Josh Seiden, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.